So, most every, or like most every college student, uh, I spent the first few days of my college experience going through orientation, and most of it was forgettable, right? I mean, orientation isn't exactly to produce, designed to produce these lasting memories. However, I do remember one particular aspect of orientation. It was in an effort to prepare all of us 18-year-old freshmen to have not only success in college throughout these, these four years or two years, whatever it was going to be, but also beyond, right, and just in life in general, they walked us through a time management exercise, right? It's so important, a time management exercise. And they began by reminding us that there are 168 hours in a week, 24 uh, you know, hours a day, seven days a week. So we have 168 hours to work with. And they went on to ask how we planned on spending our time or what activities we were planning on doing every single week, and then to give an estimate of how much time we were going to be spending on those particular activities. And so we began to create a list of all these things that we had plans and hopes to do each and every week. Of course, we would go to class, never would miss any class. And so we'd be there, you know, 15 hours a week or so, depending on the semester or course load. And then we said, you know, all right, we'll probably be studying for about 18 hours a week. We probably lied to them. And then, you know, we're going to spend six hours uh, eating. We're going to do devotions for three hours. And I went to a Bible college, so we had to say that, right? Well, of course, we're going to do devotions for three weeks. We'll sleep maybe 42 hours a week, you know, average six hours a night, you know. And again, we're probably lying to them. And, and the list went on and on and on. You get the idea. And so after we compiled this list of activities that we planned on doing each week, we then tallied up the total amount of time. And I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you, but the total amount of time that we were planning on spending on all these activities each and every week as college students was way more than 168. And so we had some real work to do when it came to time management. Now, while our list may have been a little bit unrealistic and fueled by a lack of real-world experience, there's something that stands out to me about that activity way back when that is very much relevant today. You see, as college freshmen, we had plans to fill our waking hours with wall-to-wall -wall activity to the point that it was going to be impossible for us to even accomplish all of the things that we wanted to do. However, as I look at my approach to life now, I don't know that much has changed. You see, I tend to fill up my schedule from sun up to sundown. Some, some things I'm aware of happening in advance, and I'll put that on my work calendar. I'll put that on my home calendar because I know those things are going to fill up some of my time. And, and perhaps you do the same thing. Maybe you even have a shared calendar at home with your spouse or your family, and, and you put those things on the calendar. Maybe it's digital. Maybe it's with paper or rock. You chisel it in. Whatever the case may be, you keep track of what your family is going to be doing or what you're going to be doing. And so if I knew something in advance, I'll put it on my calendar. And then the hours, though, that are not spoken for are quickly filled up by some other activity. Generally speaking, we are always on the go in some way, shape, or form. And even when we're not on the go physically, we're on the go mentally. We're always asking the question, even if we're sitting somewhere, well, what do I have to do next? 
Where do I need to go? What's coming up this week, this month, this year? What do I need to be doing now or just a few moments from now? We live our lives like we're a football team constantly running a two-minute drill. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Run this play. Get to the line. Run another play. Accomplish this task. Go to this event. Check that off. And then on to the next thing. And we rarely take time to slow down and get back in the huddle. We're constantly running a hurry-up offense. And then on top of that, we have this high level, on top of our high level of activity, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm wired to, to enjoy and pursue and have this desire for productivity and efficiency. I try to squeeze in every last drop of productivity that I can out of the day, right? I'm going to make things happen. And so I work to eliminate inefficiency and things that will only slow me down. And while that's certainly not all bad, that approach or that desire for productivity only seems to perpetuate this hectic, busy, fast, and furious pace. And all of this results, there's, and as a result of all this, there's, there's very little margin in my life. There's very little blank space. And what's often lacking in a given week is rest, Sabbath, and a holy, unhurried pace. And perhaps that's true of you as well. You feel that. Even as you look ahead to what's coming in the next seven-day period, you know there's not going to be much resting going on. Now, like the rest of you, I can give you reason upon reason an excuse upon excuse for why I'm living at the pace I'm living and why I feel so busy and frantic and hurried all the time. And there may even be some validity to my reasons and to your reasons of why our lives look the way they do. See, the first one for me is, is kind of obvious. I have four kids ages seven and under. <laughs> and so, with four littles at home, Every time I try to rest, and this would be true for my wife as well, it's interrupted by a request for a snack, a mess that needs to get cleaned up, a butt that must be wiped, a kid that needs to be driven somewhere, and we've barely just begun that phase of parenting. There's a fight that needs to be officiated, not broken up, sometimes just officiated. Let them wear themselves out. Bedtime will be easier, right? Just let them go at it for a little bit, and they'll come in when they're tired. But this is our reality, right? Another reason for a lack of rest is that I have a job that I love, a job that is a privilege to do, a job that requires a lot. And I know that line of thinking is true for so many of you as well. In addition to that, Everybody's got responsibilities at home, chores to do, bills to pay, cars to maintain, things to organize. The list goes on and on and on. I have hobbies that I enjoy, friends that I like to see from time to time, just time to time, a wife that I'm actually really fond of and we enjoy spending quality time together, 
And I'm sure many of you can relate when that quality time does get around to happening. It's often we're passed out on the couch next to each other because we've just gone through the battle royale that is bedtime. And I could go on and on and on. And I'm sure you could as well. Yet despite all my reasons and despite all my excuses for why life looks the way it does, it doesn't change God's call for us to rest. We're called to live at a different pace of life than the one so many of us are living. It's a pace that Jesus modeled and one that he desires for us to live. Allow me to give you a few examples of the unhurried life of Jesus and our call to rest. Now, you may remember at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, it was a three-year period of time, and he kicked off that earthly ministry with a 40-day publicity tour announcing his arrival as the Son of God, right? He got on the scene and said, hey, here I am. I'm going to meet these needs, all of them. Some of them you don't even know that you have, and, and, and here we go for the next three years. He didn't do that, right? We know that. He didn't operate in that way. Now, knowing that he would only have three years to do ministry, I'm kind of like, yeah, start off with a bang. Let everybody know about your arrival. That seems like a great idea. But he took a much different approach. You see, his three years of ministry began with 40 days in the wilderness alone, where he was prepared for ministry. He was tempted by Satan. Luke chapter 4 talks about that. 40 days is a significant period of time when you realize I only have three years to work with. And if I'm Jesus, I'd be chomping at the bit. Let me get going. I only got three years. I got a lot of work to do. There's a lot that needs to be accomplished in this short period of time. We all know how fast three years can go. But Jesus doesn't approach life and ministry like we do. He's unhurried when it comes to the pace of his life. As you might expect, the needs and demands on Jesus' time during his earthly ministry were endless. They were constant. And so it would make sense for you and I to say, well, Jesus must have always been on the go. However, despite his full schedule, he took time away from the crowds. He took time away from the hustle and the bustle to be with God. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 37 says this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Uh, Jesus, where have you been? What are you doing? Don't you know all of these people need your attention right now? Don't you know that there's all of these things that you still need to accomplish? That's why you're here, right? What are you doing taking time for yourself? What are you doing removing yourself from all of these people who need you? But Jesus intentionally carved out time to slow down and be with God. And so Jesus not only models an unhurried life, but he calls us to the same. He calls us to slow down and to find rest in him. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, it says, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
And I will give you more to do. I will increase your to-do lists. I will list upon list all the things that you can do for my kingdom and for the good of the community and to expand my kingdom here on earth. You will be so busy by the time I get done with you. No. Come to me and I will give you rest. And in verse 29 to 30, he goes on to say, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You may also recall the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments that says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. During his earthly ministry, Jesus spent a lot of time removing the legalism attached to the commandment about keeping the Sabbath. And I think we'd be wise as followers of Jesus in this day and age to practice the original heart and intent of the Old Testament commandment to keep the Sabbath. It would serve us well to set aside time to rest and worship God and express our gratitude to him for all that he's done for us. Now when we see examples of Jesus' life, from Jesus' life, of, of this unhurried pace of life. And we hear this call to rest. I'm sure there are plenty of things going on in your mind. And if you're like me, the things, the thoughts that are swirling, a lot of them have to do with pushback. As we consider, well, well how is that unhurried pace and how is this call to rest really going to play out in my life? Right, what does that actually look like? Is that even possible? Maybe you're thinking, well, I get what you're saying, Derek, but this is the culture we live in. We live in a fast-paced society. Living an unhurried life and cultivating the habit of rest, it just won't work here. And there's no denying. Ours is a culture that values speed and efficiency and quickness. But as followers of Jesus, we should know that our culture shouldn't dictate to us the standard of what is normal and healthy. In his book, An Unhurried Life, Alan Fadling writes this, I like to describe spiritual leadership as living a grace-paced grace life in the midst of a driven culture, living at a vital, life-giving, peaceful pace while remaining engaged and active in the kingdom work Jesus began here on this earth. I live not at the mercy of the culture's pace, but blessed by the mercy of an unhurried Savior. See, it may not be easy, but the calling to live at an unhurried pace in the midst of a hurried culture, it still remains. Some of you may be thinking, I legitimately don't have time to rest. I can't afford to slow down. And I realize that very well may be true for you. You may find yourself in that exact scenario where you truly can't slow down right now. There is no rest. And if that's where you're at, fine. But let me ask you this question. Are you unable to slow down and rest for a season? Or has frantic and hurried become the normal? Because we get it. We all are going to go through seasons of life where we have to go hard all the time, sun up to sun down, and there is no margin. There is no time to slow down and rest. That's going to be true of everybody. 
for different seasons of life, however long or short they may be. But is it a season or is it the norm? And when hurried and hectic and when fast and furious becomes our normal, it's time to stop saying, this is just my reality, this is just my life, and make changes. Figure out how you're going to do something differently. And perhaps some of you are thinking, well, well, shouldn't we do things for God? I mean, shouldn't we work hard for God? Isn't rest just an excuse to be lazy? And after all, I'll rest when I'm dead, right? I'll just rest when I'm dead. To be clear, though, an unhurried life isn't lazy. We should work hard. We should strive for productivity. And Scripture calls us to do just that, and it calls out those who are lazy. Unfortunately, though, we don't often strike a healthy balance between the two. And our desire to work hard and be productive can easily turn into a life without margin. And so we have to be careful because while Scripture says we shouldn't be lazy, it also says we need to slow down and rest. Not to mention if the Son of God took time to rest while he was here on earth, you better believe we need just as much of it, if not more. Right? Now I realize plenty of us are operating at a hurry pace, and we've been doing so for a long time. And we got pretty good at it, to the point where you might even think, I'm good. I don't need to make any changes. But here's the reality that we need to understand. Living at a hurried pace, it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. And one of the potential costs of our hurry and productivity is that we miss out on the real work that God has for us. In Luke chapter 10, verses 23 through 37, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story that you may be familiar with, at least to some degree. And so I'll tell you the abridged version. It begins with this man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And while he's on this road, he's ambushed, beaten, robbed, and left on the roadside for dead. Throughout the story, then, three men proceed to pass this man who had been left on the roadside. The first man is a priest, one who would have been assumed to stop based on his occupation and help the man. But he sees the man, moves to the other side of the road, keeps going. The second man who comes down the road is a Levite, also somebody who had religious responsibilities. He was responsible for some of the things that went on in the tabernacle. You would assume that he would also be one to slow down, stop, help. He didn't. Moved to the other side of the road, kept going. Third person was the Samaritan. He sees this man, he gets off his donkey, he has compassion. He begins to address his wounds. He puts him on his donkey, takes him to the, this inn where he spends with him, spends time with him, nursing him back to health. Eventually he goes to the innkeeper and says, this person's going to stay here with you under your care until he gets well. Here's some money to take care of his expenses. I will be back to repay you for any expense that goes above and beyond what I'm giving you right now. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. And while scripture doesn't tell us why the Samaritan chose to stop, I wonder if it had something to do with his pace of life. Perhaps he was living an unhurried life. Why would that matter? Because when our pace is slower, we're not as rushed, 
We're not as frantic. We're not as overwhelmed. And this allows us to not only see, but respond to the opportunities that God puts in front of us. Maybe the priest and the Levite had no margin in their lives for interruptions. Maybe they were consumed with the tasks for God that they were on their way to do. But whatever the case, they missed an opportunity to do what God wanted them to do. They missed an opportunity to minister to someone who was in need. And for you and I, when our only focus is efficiency and productivity, it can affect our ability to love well, to show grace, and to minister to others. And then on top of that, we get so laser-focused on what we do for God that we fail to accomplish what he actually wants us to do. We get so busy doing that we never stop to see what it is that God wants us to really accomplish. Because we never take time to slow down and listen to him. One of the most convicting questions I've come across recently, it asks, does, our, does, does all our activity actually produce lasting fruit? All the things that I'm doing, all that stuff on my list that I love to check off and I'm busy doing this and that and, and accomplishing this, handling this detail, taking care of X, Y, Z, whatever it is, does all of that, that stuff that makes me so, so busy and hurried and frantic and like I'm running this hurry up offense, does that, does that really produce lasting fruit? Or if I just got caught up in, in, in liking how it feels and wanting to be productive and do stuff that, that just matters to me. Another potential cost of our hurry and productivity is burnout. Listen to this quote from Alan Fadling. Making things happen isn't as helpful as learning to respond with courage to whatever God is doing. He makes things happen, and we would be wise to choose to work with him. My hurry is what often makes the yoke of life and ministry heavier than Jesus meant it to be. It's my fault. It's my own fault. I'm trying to do too much. I'm trying to squeeze too much in. I'm the one who's created this frantic schedule, this go to here, go to there. There's no margin, and I feel good about it because I'm getting stuff done. But all of a sudden, I turn around and, and wonder, why does it feel so heavy? Well, it's my own fault. You see, when we try to do too much and shoulder a load we weren't meant to carry, it leads to burnout. If you know our senior pastor, he's one of the hardest working people around. You may also know that this is an area, by his own admission, that is challenging for him as well. He is not someone who likes to slow down. However, among the many things I admire about our senior pastor, Chris, is that he's willing to acknowledge that this is an area of improvement in his own life and leadership. And not only is he willing to acknowledge it, 
but he's, plan- he, he's taking steps, however painful for him they might be, to grow in this area. You see, he desires to model a healthy pace for his family, the church staff, and for us, the congregation that he leads. And all of this plays a role into the sabbatical that he's going to be taking later this year. The elders have been encouraging Chris to take a sabbatical for the last few years because he has never taken one in the 17 years since he started LifePoint. Now, for those of you who are unaware of this concept of a sabbatical, it's a little bit foreign to you. A sabbatical is customary in churches. It's to give uh, pastors anywhere from four to eight weeks every seven years or so to rest and recoup and do other things. And since the encouragement from the elders hasn't really worked, they finally requested it and required it. And so, Pastor Chris will be doing that this summer. And I can tell you it's going to be the absolute best thing for him, his family, and our church. Why? Because rest is needed. And God has required it for us to be healthy. Now, Pastor Chris doesn't have it all figured out, and as you've seen, neither do I. Not even close. But I know that I am my own worst enemy, just like you are your own worst enemy when it comes to a lack of rest. And by God's grace, I hope we can all make progress, steps in the right direction. We live in a culture, we live in a society that is not going to give us a day off. Those fast-paced standards won't change. And so rest is something we must work for, even fight for. It's a habit that must be cultivated. It won't happen by accident. It requires intentionality, carving out time in our calendar. It requires discipline. And ironically, it's going to take us time to unlearn the hurried pace that we've created. It's not going to be efficient. We're going to have to be patient. But we can't give up on cultivating the habit of rest because the payoff is huge. So what are some steps that we can take to develop the habit of rest and holy unhurry? And of course, there's lots of things that we can do to do just that, but I'll give you a few ideas. The first is to say no. Say no. If you're in the habit of saying yes to God, there's a whole lot of other things that you can say no to. As long as we're saying yes to God, we can say no to a whole lot. And some of us need to do just that. The second thing that we can be doing is block off time in our calendars to rest. From time to time, and certainly not often enough, Aaron and I will write no plans in our calendar. No plans. And so whenever we're asked to do something or we get this brilliant idea of something that we can fill our calendars with, It's that reminder, that slap in the face of, nope, you got to slow down. You got to take time and rest. The third thing we need to do for some of us is take a nap. Take a nap. I had a college professor who said, sometimes taking a nap is the most holy thing you can do. Why? Because we can't do anything well when we're not rested and experiencing the type of rest that God wants us to experience. 
And lastly, then perhaps even the, the most important step is to ask the right question. Ask the right question. So often we ask ourselves, what do I need to do? What's on my list? What do I need to accomplish today, this week, this month, this year? What are my goals? That's the wrong question. What does God want us to do? What does God want me to do? See, it's not about me. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my schedule. Like that quote said, I would be wise to join in the work that God is already doing instead of creating a whole bunch of work for myself. What does God want us to do? And if we ask that question of ourselves consistently and honestly answer it, slow down long enough to get an answer, we won't miss opportunities to do the actual work that God requires, work that produces lasting fruit. My hope and prayer is that as we take steps in the right direction, we'll begin to experience the unhurried pace of life that Jesus models and find the rest that only he can provide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, you call us to so many things. Your word is filled with instructions about, about who we are to be, how we're to live our lives. God, and, and here's an area when we consider the time and the place in which we live that, that we don't always do this well. You modeled it for us. You called us to it, but but we, we're so quick to brush that to the side. Yeah, yeah, but, but I, have to, I have to get over here and, and I have to accomplish this, God. And, and, and we have those conversations. We, we rationalize all of these things in our mind. God, help us in this area. May this be a habit that we can truly cultivate, that we can truly develop so we can produce fruit that actually matters. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.